Jesus is talking about the rules, about uh, the commandments. Uh, he has been getting a lot of heat from the Pharisees. And the reason he's getting heat is because they feel like Jesus, uh, from the establishment, that is, uh, they feel like, um, like uh, Jesus and his disciples are not taking the commandments very seriously at all. For example, the, com- the, the disciples have been found picking uh, grains of wheat um, while they're passing through the wheat fields and eating it on the Sabbath. And another thing. Uh, they've been uh, spotted not washing their hands before they eat. Now, not very Mr. Fauci, but, but because of ritual reasons, you know, because it was ritually. They thought that was wrong according uh, to the scriptures as well. And so they were very critical. Now, this is important to us because, um, because we know from reading the Bible... And we know, especially from reading the Gospels, that we're not saved, we're not made right with God, um, we're not made fit for heaven by keeping the commandments. Now, a lot of people don't understand this. Uh, They suppose that um, if they were just to keep the law, the rules a little better, then, you know, when they stood before the Lord, things would probably turn out pretty well for them. But that is just... Uh, not true. Um, and people like that generally, to be honest, have sort of a high view of themselves and sort of a low view of God. Uh, we know uh, that Jesus came and died on the cross uh, to pay the debt of our sins that we've all occurred because of our utter failure to keep the law and in any sort of way. A, a Christian. You see, a Christian is a person who who cries out and says, Lord, Jesus, forgive me my sin, forgive me my law-breaking and save me. I keep doing what I shouldn't do and what I don't want to do, and I can't help myself. And he does. Uh, he, he saves us. In fact, the, the Bible says that we're not saved by the works of the law, not by keeping the commandments, but by pure grace. And that is wonderful news. Um, But, in our text this morning, Jesus defends the commandments. He says, do not think, do not suppose that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. In saying so, uh, Jesus is affirming the continued uh, importance and validity of the law. We are not to be lawless. The commandments do have an important part in our life. And every Christian should, uh, should rejoice that we're not saved by grace, uh, that we are saved by grace and not by the law, and yet um, we have this law, and uh, we need to understand it. Uh, in other words, we need, to, we need to, to put the law and the gospel together in the right place. So let's read the text found this morning in um, Matthew chapter 5. Verses 17 to 20, continuing through this part of the this study of the part of the um, Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, verses, um, verses 17 through 20. Do not think... 
that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In my um, exposition of these verses, I have um, co-opted um, three points from um, a commentary by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, and they are first the continuing validity of the law, um, the, uh, secondly the fulfillment of the law, and finally the spirituality of the law, and I'll explain each of these. I should say that Dr. Ferguson should not be held responsible for any more than those three uh, titles or, or divisions of the text. Well then, why uh, does Jesus um, um, stick up for the law? We're really uh, at part B of this, um, of this thing. We talked about the, the fact that we're not to be uh, lawless. But why does Jesus stand up for the law? What is the continuing purpose of the law? Well, let me explain it this way. At the time of the Reformation, when people started to, to study the Bible again carefully, they picked it up and, and were starting to read it again, and they were able to do that. Um, uh, after so many terrible years of neglect, uh, the great leaders of that day, of Martin Luther and John Calvin and others, men who were all very zealous for the gospel and for the doctrines of grace and the uses of the law, still felt compelled to reaffirm and explain that, explain the uses of the law and importance of the law, and why Jesus was so strong and why he's so emphatic in this text uh, on the continuing uh, validity and necessity of the law. Um, it turns out, one way to understand this is to understand three uses of the law. Uh, now, the first use of the law is simply to convict us of our sin. Um, to, to, um, to show us. In, in, this, in the law, God puts us on notice, doesn't he? Of, of the high holiness of, of himself and his, and, his, and his commandments reflect this. Uh, when we read or we hear the commandments, uh, we understand uh, them and we, we should be convicted by our utter failure to keep them. And our, in fact, our, our deliberate disregard of them. The, the commandments, in other words, show us that we're all lawbreakers. For example, the law tells us that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our lives. And we recognize pretty quickly that we don't do anything of the sort. Um, when the law tells us that, that all liars and thieves and drunkards and idolaters and sexually immoral will be excluded from the kingdom of heaven, we recognize pretty soon that every one of us is in deep trouble and desperately in need of God's mercy. So the law is a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ, to drive us to the cross. That's the first use of the law, 
to convict us of our sin. Oh boy, I'm in a heap of trouble. All right. Now the second use of the law <coughs> is to restrain, um, uh, to restrain evil uh, 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 in the world. Um, the murderer, the thief, the adulterer thinks twice before murdering and thieving and breaking his word and contracts, especially when the state adopts God's law and adds sanctions or punishments for the breaking of it. Most laws in the world, the Western world, are based on biblical law. And while the law can't change your heart, the law is powerless to change your heart, it does serve to bring about a limited measure of justice on the earth. People are fearful of murdering because murderers go to jail or get executed. So a nation of, of laws, even imperfect laws, is preferable to uh, anarchy. So that's the second use of the law. It restrains sin. Now here's the third use, and the third use of the law is really for Christians. It points us to a life of faithful righteousness. Because you see, the law reveals what's pleasing to God. How do we want to, you want to please God? How do I please God? Well, look at the law. Love what God loves. Um, See, the believer is no longer condemned by the law because he or she has been supernaturally born again and, and sustains a new relationship with God through Christ. And so he has a loving, saving relationship with the Savior. But now, now with a new heart uh, and new affections, the Christian desires very much to please his heavenly Father. He understands what pleases the Father by reading the law. God is honored. God is glorified by holy lives of God, uh, you know, honoring people, honoring the Lord. Uh, this, writes uh, R.C. Sproul, is the highest, uh, highest function of the law, to serve as an instrument for people of God uh, to give him honor and glory. Uh, it's the delight of any Christian uh, to, to love Jesus and to sing, How I Love Thy Law. Well, that's my first big point then. The continuing validity of the law. Um, uh, but here's the second. Jesus says in verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. We've established that. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So, how does Jesus fulfill the law and uh, the prophets? Um, let's first think about these prophets. And, and this is a great thing for Christians to understand. And it's a lot of fun uh, to, to look at prophecies. You know, the Bible is absolutely loaded with prophecy in the Old Testament that have all been minutely and perfectly fulfilled, or will be, um, we read, for example, uh, uh, prophecies about Jesus' birth that were written long before he was born. And incidentally, we have written copies of these, of these documents that predate the birth of Christ. Did you know that? The Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. They're, they're dated as being written before Christ was even born. So we, we know these things are true. Um, so, you know, here's, a, here's the, the, seventh, the 7th century B.C. prophet Micah, specifically naming the town of Bethlehem in which Jesus was born. 
And in fact, there are many Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life and, and ministry. We see many amazing prophecies regarding his death. Uh, King David, writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, over a thousand years before the birth of Christ in Psalm 22, gives a strikingly uh, detailed description of the crucifixion. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments by, uh, amongst them and they cast lots for my clothing. You don't mean to say that those Roman soldiers, you know, were reading, uh, Marcus, uh, what does it say next that we're supposed to do here? <laughs> you know, they, they just did what God told them to do, you know? And, and this is prophecy that was perfectly fulfilled. And so, as we read these, we, we recognize that, um, that yes, um, you know, this is, this is wonderful. We could go at, we could, I could spend the whole morning reading um, about these sort of texts. But my point is simply this. How were all of these hundreds and hundreds of prophecies fulfilled? They were minutely and exactly fulfilled by our Savior because he is the Savior and he proves he's the Savior by his fulfillments. Uh, They verify for us not only the trustworthiness of the Bible, but especially the glory of the Lord Jesus. But let's especially understand how our Lord Jesus also fulfilled the law, um, since we're focusing here on the law. Verse 17 again. Um, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, to see how Jesus fulfilled the law, we need to make a differentiation, a distinction, and understand uh, three different types of law. When you open the Bible, you read about all sorts of different types of law. The first is what we might call the ceremonial law, regarding those laws that particularly touch on the religious or temple rituals of the Old Testament age. The most striking being the multitude of prescribed ritual animal sacrifices of the Old Age. They were all pointing what? To the Lord Jesus. That's why they did that. And, uh, and of course, um, you know, what happened to those bloody sacrifices? Why don't we do those anymore? Well, because... Um, Christ, the Lamb of God, the consummate final sacrifice was, was, was sacrificed for us. He fulfilled all of those, uh, of those rituals by his own death on the cross, by his own shed blood on the cross. What about all of the uh, ceremonial washings and, and dietary laws that the Pharisees were so concerned about? That, you know, the elaborate washings of hands and feet and various ceremonial items. What happened to them? Well, they were also fulfilled by Christ. For So in the same way, pointing to the fact that we also are cleansed, completely washed of our sin by the sacrifice of Christ through his righteousness then, which was credited to us as believers. The great purpose of these ceremonial laws, after all, was to show us our moral perfection, but Christ, or imperfection, corruption, but, but Christ fulfilled all of that and covered our corruption with his shed blood, the blood of the Lamb of God shed on the cross. Secondly, besides these ceremonial laws, you'll read passages, <clears throat> quite a lot of them, about 
what we'll call civil law, having to do with matters of state and elaborate family relationships and laws or governing, particularly governing the, the government of, of, of the state at that theocratic time uh, and stage in history. Now, what happened to them? Well, our Lord ended them as well uh, with the death of Christ. The church would no longer be ruled by the same civil code. We don't ask the civil magistrate to, to enforce all of these Old Testament civil laws. Um, and, and it would be inappropriate to do so. It's no longer the business of the church, for example, to stone uh, adulterers, but rather to pray for them and instruct them. And if necessary, to hand them over to Satan that their sinful nature might be destroyed. In fact, there's only one law, one set of laws, that is the moral law, as distinct from the ceremonial law and the civil law, only the moral law remains in force today. And the Ten Commandments, brothers and sisters, is the summary of the moral law. Which, by the way, were every one of them affirmed uh, by Christ, either by specific command or by example, and having, as such, continued application for us today. Uh, putting Christ first in our lives, the first commandment. Worshiping him properly, the second. Honoring his name and his day and the authorities he has set to rule over us, the third, the fourth, the fifth. Murder, adultery, false witnesses, and covetousness, all of them are still in force today for Christians and for everybody else as well. The continuing importance of the place of the moral law in our lives is, I think, very nicely illustrated by Dr. Ferguson in an, with an analogy, a little story. He says, he says, look, the Christian life is like a mighty steam engine. Uh, the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is the power that drives that steam engine uh, about um, and, um, and uh, drives it in the lives of believers. But the law of God is the tracks on which to run. And the law of God is the tracks to run to help to guide us to the destination. Without God, uh, without the law, how would we know what pleases God? Uh, how would we have wisdom to move in a Godward direction? Um, Christ fulfilled the law so that Christians uh, would no longer be under the condemnation of the law. Uh, we're not saved by the law, but the law still remains a great blessing to God's people. And that's what I want to talk about in conclusion, about the spirituality of the law. <clears throat> um, and let me just, I hope you can be patient for this. Um, and as I make this last point, um, my third point, um, Jesus says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Now, <clears throat> one of my favorite books, and one of my children and grandchildren's favorite books, and you know I have a lot of children and grandchildren, and you know this book too, probably. And that is Amelia Bedelia. Everybody, some, got everybody on Amelia Bedelia? Amelia Bedelia is, um, uh, she's this hired maid, right, for some rich folks. And um, she is the consummate literalist. 
Uh, so when Mrs. Rogers instructs Amelia Bedelia to draw the curtains and, and dress, the, uh, dress the chickens that have been, uh, the chicken that's been delivered by the, the butcher and, and, um, and, to, and, and, and to dust the furniture, she does exactly that. She, um, she draws pictures on the curtains. She dresses up the chicken that's been delivered with doll clothes. And, and she sprinkles talcum powder all over the furniture to dust the furniture. Now, the Pharisees were, um, were a bit like that. And, and I guess all of us are sort of recovering Pharisees. Um, God calls us to be holy. But it's not easy. It's hard to follow the Lord. In fact, the, for the unconverted, for the unsaved man or woman, it's absolutely impossible. Um, it's much easier to be a rule keeper. That's why you may wonder, well, why are some of these other religions in the world so big? Why are there so many people in some of these other religions? Well, here's the answer. Because it's easy. You just keep the rules. I mean, even if you don't keep them very well, so what, you know? That's easy. You know, it's much easier to be a law keeper on a very superficial level. And the Pharisees were great ones at this. Uh, they dressed the right way. They said long prayers. They kept bad people at a distance and they filled their lives with ritual. But you know the trouble with this, don't you? It's all just window dressing. It's all just externalism. It was literalism. It was just a show. It could never get to the heart of the matter because Jesus is always concerned with the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is your heart and my heart. You Pharisees, says Jesus, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, clean the inside of the cup and then the outside will be clean. Do you get it? I, I used to have a, a cup, I thought, to illustrate this. It was a very nice-looking white china cup, but i tip it, and you could see it was black and nasty and gnarly-looking inside. Um, but we get the idea here. Um, Jesus works from the inside out. You see? He works from the inside out. He changes our hearts. And then the outside is not so hard. Um, the Pharisees' problem was... They just focused on the outside. Uh, their problem was they didn't understand the depth of their sin, so they didn't appreciate how Jesus had fulfilled the law. And so they rejected him as Messiah and the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They were offended by Christ, and especially, and many people follow in this today, they were offended by the simplicity of the gospel. What do you mean you just pray to receive Christ? That's all. You don't have to do all this stuff. Kind of hard to explain people sometimes, isn't it? They want to do things. We all like to do things. Yeah, let's go fix it. But to be told that to have to humble yourself and say, no, Lord, I, I can't fix a thing. You see, in fact, the righteousness of Christ found in the Law and the Prophets taught by Jesus was far broader and far deeper than the scribes and the Pharisees uh, uh, could produce. Um, 
It's not enough, you see, just to give the, the church tithe. God wants our hearts. God wants us to give that tithe with a, with a grateful heart, with a heart that's filled with the love of Christ. And, and, and so it's no burden, it's no struggle to give that to the Lord. It's a great blessing. It's part of our worship. It's a wonderful way to show the thankfulness that we have for God's love and mercy and the forgiveness of our sins. You see, the Pharisees within us, the, the Pharisee within us complains, 10%! Why, even the government hardly, well, it's not true anymore. The government takes more than 10%, don't they? But anyway, you get the point, you know, and, and, and we think, well, I mean, this will kill my budget, you know. So we give it grudgingly, if at all. It's, that's completely unacceptable. What Jesus is referring to, that's what he's referring to when he speaks about relaxing uh, uh, the least of my commandments. See, that's what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. They were, they, were, they were treating the law in a very literal manner to escape its force. They were, they were blunting the moral heart sense of the law to make it just very practical and doable. Uh, relaxing God's law, getting away with the very least, you know. Uh, you know, the, like the light church, all right, you know? The light church, where it's the home of the 8.5% tithe, you know, where, you know, you don't, you don't have to join or anything like that. It's easy. But the heart of the Christian says, 10 for tithes, I love tithes, 10%, take 20, take whatever you need, Lord, it's all yours. Praise, praise the Lord that I have this opportunity to press forward your gospel and, and have missionaries all over the world. That's the heart of a saved man. So, what does Jesus want? What does he really want from us? He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, you and I know that the only righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, they were, they were great law keepers. How could you beat these guys? Um, I mean, even the Apostle Paul was bragged about that. He says, oh, you want to talk about law keeping? I knew how to keep the law, brothers. You know, that wasn't enough, and he knew it. Um, you see, unless uh, they were perfect, but, but the only one was really perfect is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He was sinless. He kept the law perfectly. He never sinned. They tried to push him into it. He never went for it. He never fell. Um, and, uh, and what he does, of course, is he, he freely gives all of his righteousness, all of his merit, he gives it freely to his people. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We have these beautiful robes of His perfection that He's put upon us. And, and then we, we delight uh, to follow Him obediently with the help of the Holy Spirit. But those who are unsaved, uh, those who, who, um, who have not the Holy Spirit within them, they will never have a right heart or an attitude in the sight of God. And all of their best efforts will be nothing more than skin-deep, pharisaical window dressing. But what man could possibly be more righteous than the Pharisees? The kind of man 
whose heart is big enough and selfless enough and generous enough to love the way Jesus loved. Only a heart, in other words, that's been supernaturally converted or regenerated by the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and and who is resting upon his righteousness and walking by his grace and by his power in the way of the Lord. Um, Only a heart like that. Let me summarize it with, with these words from Ferguson. He says the law is not the basis on which we merit salvation, but it does provide a test to distinguish between those who belong to the kingdom of salvation and those who are outside of it. It is the real test of whether we've been born again or not. If we have been, that is, if we've been born again, then God's law has been written in our hearts and we obey it joyfully. If we've not been, then we just make a pretense of of living a, a new life. But eventually the mask will be dropped and we will despise some of the laws and soon we'll encourage others to do it as well. And thus we'll be barred from the kingdom of heaven. Loving God's law means loving Jesus so much that we're willing and anxious to wrestle with our sin and seek to follow Christ. And we pray uh, each day, asking God to give us wisdom and strength and power to do that. Because we can't do it ourselves. We have a mighty, powerful God. Jesus uh, did not deliver us from the condemnation of the law to make it a burden, but rather a delight. He said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And that's the truth. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your law. We thank you that it disabuses us of thinking that 